I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Media Confidential, Prospect Magazine's weekly analysis of what's really happening behind the scenes in the biggest media organizations. I'm Alan Rusbridger. And I'm Lionel Barber. And on this week's episode, well, it's over to you, our listeners. We've asked you for your questions, and you've delivered. We've received a varied assortment of questions relating to many of the subjects we've discussed previously. So thank you to those of you who sent them to us via X at MediaConfPod and MediaConfidential at ProspectMagazine.co.uk. So, Alan, what's been landing in your inbox? Well, to start on a serious note, uh, Lionel, the uh, Committee to Protect Journalists uh, has been monitoring the number of journalists who are dying uh, in the current conflict in Gaza. I think we should come back and do a a full episode on that. But I was speaking to uh, Jody Ginsberg, a Brit who is currently heading the New York-based organization who's recently been in Doha. And she said the the question she was asked uh, by everyone was, why does the world not care? How how can it be that 70 journalists have have been uh, killed and nobody is raising a protest? I sense behind it there's a complicated question about who is a journalist, because we know there are no Western accredited journalists in Gaza. Uh, and so I think it's too easy for the world to sort of shrug and say, oh, well, these people aren't really journalists or, you know, they, they've got Hamas connections or whatever. But uh, but the CPJ is pretty robust in saying, uh, actually, we've looked at the list of people who have died uh, and we're happy to stand by the fact that they were engaged in what we call journalism. Uh, so that's a that's a gloomy start to the program, isn't it? It is very gloomy. I'm afraid I've got worse news or as bad news. Which is, I, I spent two hours, first hour was just listening, second hour watching Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin. And I had a special interest, obviously, because I had interviewed, I think it was the last Western journalist, in fact, to interview Vladimir Putin five years ago. And just watching Tucker essentially failed to ask Mr. Putin serious questions or challenge him or follow up on his baseless assertions and and his engagement in conspiracy theories. I mean, Ukraine's not a real country. Poland, by the way, that got at least 25 uh, mentions in this interview. Um, Poland collaborated with Nazi Germany in 38-39. No real mention or follow-up on what Stalin was doing with Hitler in 1940, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, etc. So Carlson... Didn't do his prep, doesn't know his history, and I'd give him, well, I think I'd give him a C minus, Alan. It was a bleak day for the, our trade. What, what, tell me about Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan has jumped ship from Talk TV and has announced that he's going to do his own thing on YouTube, uh, a bit like Russell Brand, 
making no other comparisons between them but but uh, but there are these these big brands uh, individual brands on on youtube some people uh say it's just about the money some people say it's because talk tv is going down, down the tubes or it's going to merge with gb news there are the conspiracy theorists that say that piers morgan's name has cropped up in a lot of phone hacking cases recently and that uh, maybe the powers that be at news have decided to get rid of him before uh, his name features even more prominently and uh, what's your take on well that? i don't think that that latter is the case i have no proof not talked to um rebecca brooks uh, the CEO who's running a news operation uh, in london uh, so i don't know but i think there are a few established facts one is Piers Morgan was being paid a huge amount of money, a reported three-year contract worth £50 million. That's a lot of money. And what was his audience? Well, on good day, maybe 125000 That's not that much. Now, of course, what he did have is 2.5 or so million subscribers to his YouTube feed. So he was getting a much bigger audience there. And I think he probably decided, well, actually, talk TV isn't really going anywhere. I'm going solo. But I also think that the cost considerations for talk TV were also weighing heavily. And there's scuttlebutt that Rupert Murdoch wasn't very impressed with Piers's viewing numbers. I have no comment. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's another name from the past that cropped up this week um, from a close reading of the Sunday Times. Do you remember Andrew Gilligan? I do indeed. And, and remind remind listeners how Andrew Gilligan, what's he, what he's most famous for? Well, he was a BBC reporter who broke big exclusive stories saying that the government had exaggerated the threat from Saddam Hussein, sexed up dodgy dossier saying that Britain could be attacked with weapons of mass destruction within half an hour or so. And as a result, the Labour government came down on the BBC like a ton of bricks and Gilligan was actually responsible for the uh, resignation of the chairman of the BBC and the director general. So quite an achievement. There was that clip on uh, the Today programme that led to the to the decapitation of the chair of the BBC and the director general of the BBC at the time. Well, he, he in subsequent life, he then went to work for Boris Johnson at um, City Hall and then followed Boris Johnson into number 10. Uh, and his name is on the 2023 list of special advisors who are working inside Number 10, being paid nearly £100,000 a year. The, the context was that he, he is now allegedly, or reportedly, being used by Rishi Sunak to compile a dossier, I won't say dodgy dossier, but a dossier on Keir Starmer and the people he defended, because that's one line of attack. And it sort of um, does raise questions about uh, if he's if he's being paid by us, the taxpayer, should he really be uh, doing that kind of uh, hit hit job on on uh, Keir Starmer? Anyway, a name from the past who's who's still with us. So today, a listeners Q and A. Uh, Alan, we've been in the media now for oh dear, I think it's. Over Stop years. it! They don't, they, nobody needs to know that. No. Well, let's just we're, say we're fast, vastly experienced is all, all, all that matters. Yeah, late seventies, grim time. I remember it well. Although we're not, we're not in our late seventies. <laughs> anyway, we are going to be answering your queries about the media, print, broadcast, and digital. 
We're privileged to be joined uh, today by Ellen Halliday, who's Prospect's deputy editor, who is also not in her late 70s, who's going to put these questions to us both on behalf of the uh, listeners who have written in. Okay, Ellen, let's go for it. Thanks for that generous introduction, Ellen. Um, So our first question is from a Chris Cohen in Stoke-on-Trent. And Chris asks... Why do you think there is a perception from the political left that the media is right-wing? And paradoxically, there is the same perception from the right about the media being left-wing. This, to me, completely undermines any sense of responsibility, creates confusion, he says. Could this be the reason? What is left and what is right? I mean, I, I, I have a sort of diagram in my head uh, that has the centre line as being roughly Lionel's FT. The moderate middle. The moderate the moderate middle. So let's say for the sake of argument that that's where the, the middle is. To the right of that, in no particular order, I would put the Times, uh, the Telegraph, really, really quite right-wing now. The Mail has always been, um, I would say, very right-wing. Uh, the Express, if we still count that, very right-wing. And The Sun, in recent years, right-wing, sometimes very right-wing. On, on the left-hand side of the ledger, th- there is The Guardian, which I would say is sort of moderate left, and The Mirror, which is the only paper which supports the Labour Party. So I think, objectively, the print media is uh, right-wing, Um so uh, I've, it's always puzzled me when, when I hear the, the, this talk about the, the, the liberal media and liberal journalists and left-wing journalists because it's just not borne out by what I think of as reality. But well, the reality is that, as you say, the press is right-wing in this country, the majority of newspapers. Um, so the pol- perception of the political left is actually reality. But um, when it comes to the right saying the media is left-wing, I think they're really talking about the BBC. So so that's that's the issue. Yeah, we've discussed this before. I think it's a deliberate tactic. I, I think all those people on the right who may well think, well, we're, we're the, 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 the moderate middle, but I think it's a deliberate tactic uh, to, to say the, the BBC is left-wing because you, you know, it has an effect and the BBC then tries not to be left-wing and moves to the right and then the whole centre of media in the country moves to the right, which is, suits the, the people on the right. Yeah, I guess the last point is that these labels are lazy and actually what we should be thinking about is what is right-wing and in my view, identity politics are trumping redistribution and economic politics. Uh, and that sort of changed the kaleidoscope. Our next question is from Mike Joff. Follows on quite nicely from that one in a way. Mike says, people often complain about the mail and sometimes other right-wing tabloids, but the Telegraph doesn't get the critical focus it deserves, in my opinion. Often the manipulation of news stories is subtle, with the tone designed to elicit an angry response. See, you disgusted of Tunbridge Wells, if you're old enough to remember that, Mike says. But there are occasions when it is just blatant. I wonder whether a more sustained analysis of how the Telegraph behaves would be useful, as the general perception seems to be that it is a quality newspaper. Ooh, a sustained analysis of the Tory graph, <clears throat> that could be um, equivalent of hard labour. Uh, when I look at the Telegraph, it's certainly changed a lot from the 80s, 90s, edited by Charles Moore and um, Max Hastings. 
you can see that they pick up stories definitely to get a lot of people angry, uh, not just in Tunbridge Wells, but absolutely up in Salford, Redwall, etc. Um, Favourite stories are all about uh, identity politics, diversity. Best one really to get everybody upset was this story about how the armed forces are not being able to recruit because of the gender diversity targets and political correctness. There's a, maybe a little bit of truth in that, but that's a real classic today's Telegraph story. I, I agree with Lionel. It, it, it's changed a lot. I mean, there was a, a a pretty rigid divide on the Telegraph between news and comment, um, and that has been eroded over the years. It's had two editors who've come from the Daily Mail, which is you know has a particular style of editorship in which everything really fits one mold. I mean, there was a crisis in, in uh, around about 2015 when the chief political commentator of the Telegraph, Peter Oborn, walked out and effectively called his own paper corrupt. Uh, and his accusation was that the commercial side of the uh, of the paper, the, the advertising side, was running the newsroom. Um, and it got a bit of pick up, pick up at the time. Um, but no one really looked into it. it was, I think it was a classic example where Ipso, uh, the new regulator after Leveson, which has got an S in it, standards. Uh, you know, if that's not about standards, uh, you know. So I think Ipso uh, failed as a regulator then. I think under the Barclay brothers, it wasn't the Telegraph's finest uh, age, and and we're now living in a time where, I think you're right, Lionel, that this sort of overwhelming sense that you have to take sides in in the culture wars uh, can distort news agendas and um, it you know there are still some very good reporters on the times there are some interesting columnists though I think the the commentary in general has moved to the right but I, I just wish it would not get caught up in these um, fundamentally to me quite tedious ideological battles over culture wars that that leave me cold I mean you can't be repetitive day in day out readers will actually drift away i think but um anyway there's a phd thesis for you uh, sustained analysis that's what we want well you can sustain that analysis on this podcast maybe (laughs) over future episodes next question is from joan devaney joan says your murdoch insights have been fascinating i sincerely hope he doesn't succeed in destroying the bbc as he's been trying to do for the last 30 plus years would he consider that his greatest achievement and is there anything we can do to stop him well i suppose the first thing to be said is that he's not getting any younger <laughs> he's, he's about to be uh, 93 i think uh, in, in uh, less than a month so uh, I, I think his lifetime mission, I think he, it, it has been a lifetime mission to try and do as much damage to the BBC as possible. So I, but I think the BBC will outlast him. On the other hand, that, that story last week that, that showed that he'd had five meetings with Rishi Sunak in the space of 12 months to discuss um, political priorities and political matters shows that he, he's still in the game uh, and uh, although he said on oath to the Leveson inquiry that he had never asked a politician for anything, uh, I suppose we have to believe him, it, it defies uh, credibility, I think, that the things he says in public about the BBC, he doesn't also say in, in private. I don't think he will achieve his mission, but I do think he's done a lot of damage to the BBC over the years. Yeah, it's destroy is too much, damage definitely, but of course he would say, uh, he's introduced competition. He created Sky. 
satellite broadcasting came in under him. There were others, but it was then consolidated. And of course, he also created competition in America, Fox, which we know has distorted later on, but initially was a great achievement. So I think he will see that he's had a co- some positive um made a positive contribution in his early days in it you British think that media. he sees that or that we should say see that no i i'm <laughs> I, I, I i think no i think he saved the british newspaper industry in the 80s um through uh taking on the print trade unions alan i mean i spent uh, three sessions out in the streets where we Sunday Times was being destroyed by. Oh, the given that, but uh, no, sincerely, I, I think um, whopping, painful and brutal though it was at the time, um, was somebody had to do that, and probably only Murdoch could. But the, the the assault on the BBC, I think, is a different kind of thing, and you just have to ask yourself: Would you rather live in a country with the BBC, or, or in a country with Fox News? And you know, the question is answered for itself. Um, to be clear, I support the BBC uh, as an independent institution. I'm just saying it, competition has been good for it. So there's a little bit of snugness occasionally around the BBC. I'm glad we're disagreeing on something, Alan. Our producer Martin is, is poised <laughs> to, to, to step between us. Yeah. Now, our next question is on a slightly different theme. So Steve Hodge from Nottingham asks, could phone hacking or similar happen again now? Why hasn't the backlash from the public been stronger? Some of what the reporters did, says Steve, was vile. Well, I've got to hand over to Alan in a very short while because this, of course, was The Guardian's story um, for a number of years. It was incredibly courageous reporting of exposing the phone happening scandal. I mean, I'm, I believe that it's very difficult for a history to repeat itself. It will be something different. Um, why has the backlash from the public not been stronger? Well... Uh, there's not always a great degree of sympathy for celebrities. Uh, that's one reason. Uh, I think as well, there is an undercurrent um, of support um, for, well, understanding that media will make some mistakes. They will cross lines. The issue here, of course, was this was absolutely egregious and should definitely have been cracked down on much, much earlier. It's an interesting question, this, because uh, I would have thought, I mean, when people used to ask me this question, uh, my answer was that after we did the main stories in 2009, that was the stories about Gordon Taylor, the, uh, the Professional Footballers Association uh, guy, which showed that it wasn't just one rogue apple uh, within uh, news. I mean, I think Nick Davis and I thought you'd be crazy to go on hacking phones after that because, you know, there was a, a series of criminal trials, the Leveson Inquiry, blah, blah, blah. And yet court papers that have come out recently strongly suggest that, that hacking went on right through the Leveson Inquiry. Um, so, uh, you know... My, my previous conviction that you'd have to be an idiot to go on behaving illegally uh, was slightly un- undermined by that. But uh, in, in general... Because it, it was absolutely intrinsic to their business model, the phone hacking, because the, to get the celebrity stories, to write about the royals, that's why I think it went on, wasn't it? That, I'm sure that's right. But what, what seems to have come, come out, and we've talked about this on a, on a previous episode, it then became corporate espionage. It was so that the skills were within the organization 
uh, and it was too tempting not to go around for the hacking phones, even if it was in pursuit of uh, Murdoch's business ambitions. So, um, you know, I think probably the answer is that there's, there's less criminal behavior, less use of private detectives. But I don't think you can confidently say it's completely stopped. Does it happen or has it happened in any other countries or is it specifically British phenomenon? It's an interesting question. I, I, the, there was a moment where it looked as though there might have been some evidence of it happening in America, but actually that evidence didn't really turn up. Uh, and I think it's a particularly British phenomenon. And, you know, why? I don't know. I mean, I, to, to go back to the last question, um, I've always thought that Rupert Murdoch doesn't really like Britain very much. Um, he, he doesn't like our institutions, doesn't like the royalty. He doesn't like the British establishment. No, which, which is slightly different. I can, I, funnily enough, I once met um, Richard Flanagan, the, the, the Australian or, or writer who went to the same college at Oxford uh, as Rupert Murdoch, Worcester, Worcester College. And he, he had a, a sort of visceral loathing for Oxford and the way that he felt that Aussies were regarded by the British establishment as represented by the, the crop of undergraduates that he met there. And I'm sure that Murdoch's experience was the same and that something about that just really want, made him want to sort of tear apart the British establishment. Well, he had a bust of Karl Marx in his um, lodgings. Uh, at Worcester, I'm told. Who knows where that is now? Pro probably not at News uh, Corporation headquarters. I mean, I certainly remember um, interviewing him for the book I co-wrote on Reuters back in the early 80s and actually Murdoch specifically describing Lord Rothermere as the worst form of jumped-up British establishment. Yeah, so quote. so he, I, he, he came into... Britain wanting to really shake things up and with no sacred idols at all, which, you know, in, in a way is a good good thing in a journalist. But um, whether it's been good for the country, I don't know. But we must get off Rupert Murdoch. What's the next question? Well, yeah, there you go. Murdoch's origin story. Um, the next question is from Rachel Johnson. Uh, Rachel, not, not the Rachel, Rachel Johnson. Johnson. We hasten to add a n other uh, Rachel Johnson. She asks if mainstream media continues to decline, who wins, and what is the end game of those constantly complaining about the so-called mainstream media? Well, I think that the great trend and story about media in the twenties now is the fragmentation phenomenon, and also the way in which. Um, individual brands, we talked about Piers Morgan's leaving Talk TV, an organization, and just going on his own through YouTube. That's the way things are going. I think you th if, if you think about Tucker Carlson was fired from Fox News, he's going through his own channel, uh, using streaming to raise a mass audience. So I, I see fragmentation is the winner, uh, certainly not mainstream media. And does, does that matter, I suppose, is the question? I think if, it matters if certain institutions, and I would put the Financial Times there, I would also put the Guardian there and the Times, if they truly decline you, and experienced journalists leave, then you lose institutional memory, you lose context, and everything becomes very shallow. And individual voices, however good, can't compensate for that. I... I broadly agree with that I, 
I mean, I'm still one of the maybe last remaining people who <laughs> is prepared to put in a word for social media. We, we were discussing this on another podcast with Alice Garnett, the young voice at the end of, of Prospect, because it's interesting. She had no sense of what the world was like before social media. She's too young. She takes it for granted that everybody on the planet has access to a, a mobile phone and, and can publish and, and have a say in things. And I asked her to imagine what it was like actually for you and me, Lionel, when we were growing up, that, 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 you know, if we wanted to be heard, there was no way of doing it. <laughs> and so I think it's easy to take it, take it for granted that we live in a world now in which anybody can have a voice and the people who w were powerless and never had a voice now have a voice. And that, that's part of fragmentation. And I think it's a good part of fragmentation. But I do think... Um, the toll that it's taken on mainstream media uh, is um, potentially disastrous because I, I don't think that, that the ability to get at facts and, and unearth them and stand behind them uh, is something that is easily done without institutional muscle. Uh, and I think societies uh, that can't agree around facts are very vulnerable. Yeah, I'd add one other thing that uh, if social media does encourage the sort of instant judgment and everything's done in a rush and mainstream media, of course, has digital arm, got newspapers plus digital, but you want forum to where people and journalists have time to reflect. I always used to say at the FT, in fact, I said it from day one, I don't want to be first. I don't want to be competitive, but I want to be right rather than just first. Yeah, but we we can't round off this bit about so-called mainstream media without confronting the fact that, that people really don't, don't trust it. And I I think they should trust it more, but, but I think mainstream media for years knew that there was a real problem with trust. And they were like Millwall Football Club. Nobody loves us, we don't care. And... Uh, I think it's about time now that we're facing a, a crisis of trust in mainstream media that editors begin to ask themselves, well, why is it that nobody trusts us? And what is to be done? And what's to be done? There's a podcast coming up. I feel it coming on. Our next question is from Scarlett Barker. Scarlett says, 20 years ago, people likely read about things once or twice a day in the newspapers. Now we have information on tap in our pocket all the time. We're instantly notified when something horrific happens. What do you think the impact of instant news is on the mental health of the population? Really interesting question. Let me try two ways of th thinking about that. Well, one, one is that one of the impacts is that people are switching off news. They're avoiding news. We talked about this a bit in an earlier episode with Rasmus Nilsson at, at Oxford, who's just written a book about news avoidance. Uh, the figures are quite startling now. Something like 40% of Americans, 30-something percent of Brits now say they, they actively try to avoid certain kinds of, of news uh, because they find it so intrusive, upsetting, per per pervasive, deadening, oppressive, all, you know, all these words that the effect that news is having on them. The other thing is a kind of, I think, a desensitization. You can't look at all those images coming out of Gaza at the moment without putting up some kind of protective shield because otherwise it really does have an impact on your, your mental health. So I think people form a kind of sort of extra skin in, in looking at some of these images and, and coping with this constant 
in, input of news. What do you think, Lionel? Well, if you think you've described this phenomenon of bombardment uh, very well, and I think the impact is negative. I think it turns people off. And what worries me, democracy depends on an informed citizenry. And I think news is part of that, the dissemination of information. And if people are, to use your phrase, desensitized, then it means that, for example, we, President Trump last week told this story about uh, how he basically told another NATO leader, if you don't pay, I don't care what happens to you. In fact, I'd encourage the Russians to invade your country. And then you have a load of Republicans saying, well, it doesn't matter, it's just Trump. And people just turned off. Well, in a few months, they're going to have to vote and they should be voting on this kind of story, which betrays a politician's judgment. So if discourse doesn't matter and is reduced and the information flows don't matter, then we're not going to have a democracy anymore. I'm not sure there have been enough academic studies yet on what this constant hamster wheel of news does to people's understanding um, this constant stream uh, in which the news is constantly being updated. And I think it takes quite a brave news editor to step off the hamster wheel and say, actually, well, where did, what happened before this story? What's going to happen afterwards? What's the context? So that news just doesn't appear completely out of context in this fragmented uh, form in, in which it's difficult to make sense of. I, I think you do need perspective and and, and reporters who work to a different kind of pace. I mean, plug here, that's what Prospect Magazine is trying to do, but I, I don't know how you coped with that, Lionel, when you were editing. Well, I, one used rather trite phrases like uh, context is king or queen, and that's context all the time. Give time to people to to report. Don't expect the story just now, don't go for clicks. You and I have talked about this in the podcast. That's not the right metric. Look at things like how much time is a, a reader spending re looking at the story? Are they sharing it? This, this is there, there are other metrics which are much more important than clicks. So something that I think about a lot with this relentless pace of, of bad news that we're exposed to, for somebody of my generation, you sort of think the world is in an absolutely dire state. And you, I ask myself has it always been this bad and it's the way that we're exposed to news that makes it feel a lot more catastrophic it's pretty bad Ellen. or is right it actually <laughs> is it actually worse than it's than it's ever been uh, i think 2024 it, it we are not in a good state in the in the western world uh because of what's happening in ukraine russian advances an election in america often we hear this all the time in media that this is the most important election since X. Well, actually, with Donald Trump versus Joe Biden aging, and this is the world's most powerful country, all that to me says we're in a very difficult spot. So media will reflect that. The different way of answering the question, Ellen, is I, I think, is this, this question of filtering. When I was approximately your age, everything was filtered on, on b before it reached me, uh, whether it was uh, by newspaper editors or TV editors, but it had all been through a filter. And so you felt you were reading a highly digested version of the world. Now it's much, much more raw. Already this morning, I've seen horrific images that... Um, would never appear in a in a national newspaper or, or broadcasting channel, right, rightly or wrongly. I mean, you can argue that 
that the, the world was too sanitized by the gatekeepers. But that sense of the world being ordered for you by someone else has gone. Uh, and there's, there's a d degree of information chaos, which I think is destabilizing for individuals. Our next question is from Peter Welsh of Wells. His question pertains to politics shows in general and BBC Question Time in particular. Why are certain guests perennial, while others seem subject to the Monbiot-Haley's Comet formula for booking? The Green Party may think that June 2061 is a while to wait, and even then it's only a strong maybe, I guess that they'll appear. Would be interested to hear both of your views, he says. Well, I do think that there are definite perennials uh, on this question time. It's a quite popular programme, but when I appeared some time ago now, but I did appear when I was editor, they'd always want to know, well, what are you going to say about this question? So I'm not a great fan of that. I believe in a bit of spontaneity. But obviously, if you've got seasoned performers whose views are very well known, that fits the programme's format. I'm looking at a chart produced by an academic at Sheffield Hallam University called Russell Jackson, who's analysed every guest on the BBC Question Time. This is two years, 2022. God, I'm really impressed with this research, Alan. I mean, what, <laughs> here I am, I'm blowing off... <laughs> a bit of improvisation and you've got charts. I've got facts. I've got facts. And the Conservatives vastly outnumbering the uh, people on the on the left of the chart. Which is what that's, we were saying that's earlier. That's what we were saying earlier. And then you've got these outliers like Nigel Farage, who I think has been on 35 times. He's never succeeded in being elected as an MP. I mean, I, I get that he has a big political influence, but arguably he has a big political influence because people keep inviting him on shows, and I'm not sure what the science is behind why he, he in particular, is invited so many times. It's, it's probably a nervous... I don't think it's science, it's business. <laughs> well, there's a nervous instinct within the BBC that doesn't want to be accused of being left-wing, so they invite Nigel Farage on, and it becomes a self-reinforcing bubble. There's, there's also... He's, he, he did um, this academic, Russell Jackson... He looked at Fiona Bruce's chairing of um, BBC Question Time, and uh, one example was um, a, a question of, of uh, immigration. This was an episode last year in February, and he timed how long Fiona Bruce allowed each panellist to speak on immigration. So Ruth Wishart, Scottish journalist, 30 seconds. Ian Hislop, editor of Private Eye, two minutes. Lionel Shriver, novelist and columnist, two minutes. Stephen Kinnock, the Labour guy, spokesman on immigration, three minutes and 30 seconds. Robert Jenrick, the conservative guy, 10 minutes. Um, He's very difficult to interrupt, though. <laughs> but that's Fiona, Fiona Bruce's uh, job, isn't it? So it's quite interesting to have that kind of analysis behind it. And you would hope that the BBC is reading his research and um, has got good answers because it, on, on the face of it, it does look as though Question Time has a slight problem. This is Media Confidential and coming up, we'll be answering more of your questions, focusing mainly on GB News. We'll be right back. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Take out a digital subscription to Prospect and enjoy a one-month free trial to our digital content. You'll immediately get full access to rigorously fact-checked, truly independent analysis and perspectives. There's no commitment you can cancel at any time. To take advantage of this offer, visit our website or go to your favorite search engine and search for quotes, Prospect Magazine subscription quotes. Before we begin the next part of our listeners' Q&A, let me quickly let you know about this week's Prospect podcast. It's all about cash. Stuart Jeffries is a journalist and author, and he joins Deputy Editor Ellen Halliday, who happens to be with us now, to talk about the future of money and how we go about spending it. In 2017, um, debit card payments overtook cash for the first time, and that, and that trend was accelerated by COVID, where people didn't really want to pay with physical cash. So that by some estimates, by 2043... Uh, we will be completely cashless. That's in the UK? Or in the UK, yeah. yeah, in the UK. And there are other societies where that will happen. It's likely to happen or predicted to happen faster, in particularly Nordic countries and, and, and China for some reason. To hear more of Stuart in conversation with Ellen, follow and subscribe to Prospect Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Media Confidential with Alan Rusbiger and Lionel Barber. And in today's episode, we're answering your questions. So, Alan and Ellen, GB News. Yeah, we've had a lot of questions about GB News. One here from John Dixon, straight and simple. He's just asking, what can Ofcom do about GB News? Uh, Good question. To my mind, it depends whether Ofcom think they're there to... uh, enforce the law as it exists or whether uh, Ofcom currently has people uh, in the form of its chief executive and uh, chair who have a different view of what the law Melanie should be. Melanie Dawes as chief executive yeah, and, and um, uh, Lord Grey. I think from their public pronouncements, they're rather sympathetic to the idea that Britain could do with opinionated TV. I've heard Michael Grey say things to the effect that, you know, it's not my job to go around censoring people. Well, it is his job to uh, enforce the law at the moment, and there is a law about due impartiality, uh, that's the phrase, on uh, on the broadcast networks. And GB News chose to be regulated by Ofcom. And if you look at the lineup of presenters, you've got Jacob Rees-Mogg, you've got our old friend Nigel Farage, Richard Tice of the Reform Party, Esther McVeigh and Philip Davis, husband and wife Tory MP, uh, Arlene Foster from the DUP, and now Boris Johnson, what do they all have in common? It, it is baffling to me that Ofcom thinks that's okay. I mean, they, they, they might counter, well, we have we have left-wing guests, but it's the presenters who frame the discussion. And also you have to look at how those programs are then chunked down to, to use on social media, in which nearly always the left-wing guests are, 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 are chopped out. 
but I think it baffles many people that the the media regulator has um, is asleep at the wheel. Yeah, they've definitely got a policy change, um, which coincides, of course, towards the end of this Conservative government, where they are not applying the wording at the wall, which is due impartiality. They're taking a very liberal, a very expansive view of that. Um, and essentially opening the door, I'd say there's a coach and several horses going through that door right now on opinionated news. And what what's striking is, of course, as you say, Alan, is this is not uh, presenters with a conservative bent. These are actually politicians, which elected politicians, which is quite different. So um, what can they do about it? Well, they can fine them. They have fined as I understand it, GB News in one or two other cases. But here, they've stayed their hand. In the last resort, of course, they could, under their powers, they could close it down, could they not? But they won't. Who thought it was a good idea that Jacob Rees-Mogg has a week off? And in his rather patrician way, he says, I've got the Prime Minister standing in for me. And effectively, the Prime Minister runs his own question time. I mean, that's just a, a... propaganda platform isn't it but they've really thought how they are going to use every little loophole and push off come around this is the new phenomenon who's advising rishi sunak did cabinet secretary not take him on one side say i don't think this is very advisable prime minister this is uh, there's a considerable controversy about this station this is now something of a frankenstein monster because the the center of gravity on gb news is now way to the right of the conservative party and is actually tinging towards reform and if the conservative party in allowing them this sort of soft um, uh, approach thought that this was going to be good news for them i think it's now a bit out of control in my view you're going to see consolidation in the uh, broadcasting media around the GB News. I think Talk TV may well consolidate. So you may see something similar to what happened with satellite broadcasting 30 years ago, where then Rupert Murdoch was the great consolidator. But watch this space. Our next question on GB News is from Simon Cockshut. He says, Surely it's helpful if all the presenters of GB News are the likes of Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson without any pretense at impartiality by having a presenter with different views. The notion of having to present news impartially, that's in quotes, is for the birds. There's always an angle of some sort influenced by where the presenter sits on the political spectrum. Discuss. In a sense, this is the the, the age-old debate about objectivity and subjectivity and there are people who think objectivity is for the birds because there's no such thing as objective news we all bring our prejudices um and there are people who say who are in favor of subjectivity yes uh, but i think it, it goes back to uh, the last question that um that that's fine but it's not what the law says ab- about broadcasting i mean I, i've said this in the past but I, I i cycle into work listening to lbc and i hear the dulcet tones of nick ferrari who uh, i think is pretty right wing uh, then i get james o'brien uh, who is pretty left-wing, and that's fine. You know, that's what LBC does, and and they balance each other out, and, and that's what the law says. So, um, you know, without repeating ourselves, uh, yeah, okay, we know where all these guys are coming from, but it doesn't mean that it's what should be happening. Alan, it's interesting that you bring up LBC because I think they've been much smarter than GB News about introducing opinion 
but they've also had elected politicians, uh, David Lammy, the shadow foreign secretary. But they also had, LBC had Nigel Farage, um, who then left uh, somewhat rapidly. I think some of the journalists were a little bit uncomfortable with that. But but they've done this in a, a format where there's an interaction with listeners and it, it's just less shoved down your throat with party politicians uh, uh, in the format that GB News is using. Right. So finally, here are a few quick fire questions. Let's see what you think. Uh, first up, should Joe Biden be on TikTok? No, 81. And after that TV performance last week, I don't think so. He'd have to be very carefully stage managed. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course he should. Yes. I mean, he may, may be disastrous, but um, but that's what democracy is all about, isn't it? Very good. Okay, next. Which media appearances usually make the difference in the run-up to an election? Are they random or dependent on political blunder? For example, Ed Miliband eating his bacon sandwich, etc. I've always been a journalist who watches for the moment. Covered three presidential campaigns as a reporter in America. And there's always, sometimes, something happens it's an incident, and I think Joe Biden's TV appearance last week was such a moment, which defines the campaign. Yeah, that, that Ed Miliband um, bacon sandwich thing always seems to be so unfair. It was just the way uh, the, the camera clicked at that particular moment. Um, I, I'm trying to think of the other ones. There was Neil Kinnock falling into the sea in Brighton, and Glenis had to... Um, uh, there was uh, Gordon Brown, and he was in Rochdale, wasn't he, talking of Rochdale. Um, he caught on uh, on a hot mic, uh, and think of Nick Clegg, uh, the other way, you know, not a disaster, but suddenly everyone fell in love with him during um, a, a couple of de- debates. Our producer Martin is throwing a left hook, which I, I take to, to mean John Prescott. Ellen, you're too young to remember. But you know, the, I do remember. You do that. remember that you remember John Prescott, something, somebody in the crowd. So I don't know whether these are completely defining moments, uh, but I agree with with. Um, with Lionel, that, that maybe that that um, Joe Biden Joe Biden moment is is not going to go away. They live on in our memories anyway. Um, okay, next is Taylor Swift and the election a bogus story which shows trivialization of news, or is it serious? Deadly serious, because in one respect, which is if Taylor Swift, who as we know is the most successful pop star in history, bigger than the Beatles, if she urges younger people to vote doesn't they need to come out for the democrats or indeed the republicans but if she says vote that could trigger people which i think would be a good thing to get out of bed youth get out of bed and vote in november in the american election last question keeping it light what is the biggest threat facing the media this year in your opinion well ellen i'm afraid i'm not going to go light here um I think that the biggest threat to those journalists trying to cover the conflict in Gaza, there's dozens of journalists who've been killed. And if you look at what's going on elsewhere, the space for independent journalism and independent reporting is getting shrunk by the week. I I wouldn't disagree with any of that, but I I think there are some technological trends that are really alarming. So one is... The share of advertising that is going to, I'm going to call it old media, is really pretty dire, I think, this year from from, from friends um, who rely on advertising revenue. 
this thing that Google is doing in search where they give you the result in in search in Google so that you don't then have to click through to the original site really threatening to the business models of, of, of a lot of companies uh, because you're not getting people landing on your uh, page. Facebook's behavior and down-ranking news, uh, Facebook almost opted out of news completely and then who knows what AI is going to do. So I think uh, you almost need a sort of tech guru within your news organization to see what these trends are doing uh, and to try and react. But, I, but they're all bad, I think, as far as I can see. Thank you, Ellen, for, for being... Um, I think you could have a future as a continuity announcer on uh, Radio Too Hall, kind. If, if everything else goes wrong. Well, thank you for all those enlightening questions, and I hope we've answered some of them satisfactorily um, keep them coming as we'll be hosting another Q&A episode in coming months I'm sure uh, next week I will be in America and Alan will be here we'll be returning to the topic of how the continuing war in Gaza is being covered well Alan it's been lovely having you in uh, London I'm going to be um, looking at the presidential campaign in America um, in Aspen uh, with the family skiing uh, so it's going to be hard work. What better place to look at it from, uh, from that? <laughs> so I will be back after a week and then off again. Don't work too hard. And remember, you can contact us at mediaconfidential at prospectmagazine.co.uk or get in touch on X, formerly Twitter. We are at MediaConfPod. Thank you for listening to Media Confidential, brought to you by Prospect Magazine and Fresh Air. The producer is Martin Points Roberts. Remember to listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And Lionel, safe travels, and we'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.